Have you heard Bret Hart's story, The Luck of Roaring Camp? The story of a baby who transformed everything. Now, Roaring Camp was a fearfully uninviting place. Not too far from Sacramento, back in the lawless days of the 19th century. Even among the mining camps of that lawless west, Roaring Camp had a sinister notoriety. It was no uncommon thing for men who differed over their cards to draw a loaded pistol to settle their disputes, their drunken brawls, their seething tempers. These things were so common that the gamblers at the neighbouring tables merely nodded and went on with their play. There was only one woman at Roaring Camp, Cherokee Sal. The less said about her, the better. But we have to mention her, for she fell pregnant. Stumpy was there, once a medical student. He did what he could to save the mother, but without success. Cherokee Sal died. But the baby was saved. Behold it lying in an old box, in the filthy room where the men gambled day after day. It wasn't a soapbox either. They didn't use soap at Roaring Camp. When the men crowded round to look at the baby, they agreed something had to be done. So immediately one was sent the 80 miles to Sacramento to buy a beautiful redwood cradle. When the baby was placed in this cradle, the obvious thing was its poor rags now seemed so much out of place. So the same man returned to Sacramento to get the daintiest and softest of baby clothes. Again the men crowded round and looked at the little thing in its froth of snowy white, nestled in the redwood cradle in the centre of the filthy room. They shyly observed to their dismay that the floor was filthy. So they got together and scrubbed it, almost to the cleanness of new boards. Again they looked around and this time they noticed that the walls were terribly dirty and smoky and dilapidated, and there was graffiti on them. So now they whitewashed the walls, and someone else patched up the broken panes in the windows, and curtains were hung. The next thing was they decided there would have to be long periods of quiet, so the little thing could sleep. This was difficult. They weren't used to quiet. In time, consideration for the baby entered into and solved lots of rows, ended many a brawl. One by one, the devilish features that gave Roaring Camp its name departed from it. Then came the fine days of summer. The men took the cradle out to the mines. To amuse the baby, they planted a few simple flowers where the cradle was placed. By the end of the season, the very mines had become a garden on top. Then the men began to think about themselves. They looked at their own appearance, their clothes, their scraggly beards. They'd been thinking of the baby so much that it even affected now the way they dressed. They'd enjoyed bringing home glistening bits of quartz for the baby, pretty coloured pebbles. Now there was more to be done. There was a knowing old proprietor of the store, and he placed odd bits of mirror about the smoke room where they yarned. And as men saw themselves in the mirror and contrasted themselves with the baby, 
things changed. Trade was revived. There was a demand for shaving materials, for soft shirts and ties. And in a wonderful way, Roaring Camp stepped out of its bad old past into a new life. The baby transformed everything. My friend, this world was once like Roaring Camp. 2,000 years ago, almost every man was a slave or a slave owner. Womanhood was debased. Childhood had no beauty or sanctity. It was a superstitious world. Seneca, who is regarded as the most refined and cultured of the noble Romans, said this, We strangle mad dogs. We slaughter fierce oxen. We plunge the knife into sickly cattle, lest they paint the herd. Children, if born weakly or deformed, we drown. But then the Christ was born. And he laid on the world his two small hands. And he lifted it up, worlds and worlds away, up to the level of love's demands. In a sense, there never was a woman or a child till Christ was born. He changed everything. Womanhood became sacred because he had a mother. Childhood likewise, because he was a child. Men and women realised you could see no nearer into heaven than you could through the eyes of a child. Christ has always been the great agent of transformation. There's one book in the Bible that's all about that, and that's the Gospel of John, which some regard as the most beautiful book in the world. Its great theme is transformation. It begins with words that echo the opening words of Scripture. In the beginning, because Christ came to make a new creation. And in this book, we see him transforming sickness into health, hunger into satisfaction, blindness into sight. Life comes from death under his transforming words. We find men like the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, half dead, half dead for 40 years. But Christ comes and kneeling over him says, Wilt thou be made whole? And soon all is transformed. I would like to read you a story of transformation from this gospel that's found in the second chapter. If you need a miracle in your life, this story may mean something very wonderful to you. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? Mine hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. 
Then the story finishes with this comment. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are seven great signs in the Gospel of John. We've spoken about them before, where Jesus transforms water into wine, a sick boy to health, an impotent man to strength, where he multiplies the loaves for hungry men, where he soothes the waters of a storm, heals a man born blind, and raises Lazarus from the dead. We see Christ transforming the situation in all those areas where we are so impotent. If you look at the miracles, they deal with quality like the wine, or quantity like the loaves and fishes, natural law like the storm at sea where gravity was about to take the disciples down, chance, apparent chance, a man born blind, death, accident, These things are all under the control of Christ. And the story of John's Gospel is that Christ, the Divine One, can transform every situation where the need be one that has to do with quality or quantity or time, such as the man who'd been 40 years ill, or space, the boy that was healed from a distance in John 4, or natural law, or chance, or death. All these areas where we're so helpless, Jesus can bring transformation. And so here's the first miracle of transformation. At a wedding feast, what a contrast to the story of the temptation. Jesus had just spent six weeks in the wilderness being tempted of the devil, and now he's called to a wedding feast. That's somewhat like life. The wheel keeps turning, changes come in. The joy of a Jewish wedding feast was not displeasing to the Son of Man. He loved to see men and women happy. And now he adds to their joy. At this his first miracle. Even though this miracle meant that from henceforth his life would never be the life of a private individual. From henceforth he'd be harried by the crowds. Soon this would lead him to judgment and to death. But he does not hesitate. Notice that his first miracle has not worked before the great ones of the Sanhedrin. It's worked in a quiet little country village. Jesus works the miracle without saying a word. Someone has said the water saw him and blushed and became rose-red wine. A marvellous story. There are two things we should specially notice. Christ's power to transform and what happens if we do not let him transform. Remember the words of the steward of the feast? Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. We can see the failure of our natural life and joy and love in the exhausting of Cana's wine. Beautiful indeed is the bridal scene with its fair and fragrant blossoms, the freshness and beauty of youth, the vigour and nobility of young manhood, the sympathy of innumerable friends, the bright and sunny hopes and prospects of future happiness. But oh, how soon the vision fails! How quickly the goblet of pleasure is drained! How often the serpent is left in the dregs! And all that remains is a memory more bitter, 
because of the joy that has turned to sadness. Now that's for life if that were all. But it's just when the natural fails that the divine begins. It's just when the old creation dies that the new creation rises. It's just when Cana's wine is exhausted that Jesus of Nazareth appears. That's the meaning of the story. If we only had this world alone without Christ, it might seem first sweet to the taste, but ultimately very bitter. Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. That's the story of the world. In that beautiful book, The Desire of Ages, which has gathered so many scattered gems of truth, we read in the story of Cana this insightful comment. As men set forth the best wine first, then afterwards that which is worse. So does the world with its gifts. That which it offers may please the eye and fascinate the senses, but it proves to be unsatisfying. The wine turns to bitterness, the gaiety to gloom. That which was begun with songs and mirth ends in weariness and disgust. But the gifts of Jesus are ever fresh and new. The feast that he provides for the soul never fails to give satisfaction and joy. Each new gift increases the capacity of the receiver to appreciate and enjoy the blessings of the Lord. He gives grace for grace. There can be no failure of supply. If you abide in him, the fact that you receive a rich gift today ensures the reception of a richer gift tomorrow. The words of Jesus to Nathaniel express the law of God's dealing with the children of faith. With every fresh revelation of his love, he declares to the receptive heart, Believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. God works on the ever-getting-better principle. He's not like the world that gives the best first and then the worst. God works the other way. Believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. The prodigal son received the best robe. God gives a cup that runneth over. He gives fullness of joy. The best testament is the second one, the New Testament that tells us of Jesus in detail. The last day of the week, the Sabbath day, is the best day. The last chapters of Scripture tell us of a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The ever-growing better principle. That's the way God works. The way of the righteous is as the dawning of a day that grows more and more to the midday meridian glory. That's the way of the saints. But the way of the world is opposite. Nothing is ever as pretty in your hand as in your head. Nothing's ever as good as we expect it will be. We are all born idolaters. We make idols of people, including ourselves, and of things. But the wine runs out. Alexander McLaren, in commenting upon this story, says that in the individual, the early days of hope and vigour, when all things were fresh and wondrous, when everything was dressed in the glory of a dream, these early days contrast miserably with the bitter experiences of life 
that most of us know in the later days. Habit comes and takes the edge off everything. We drag remembrance like a lengthening chain through all our life. And with remembrance come remorse and regret. The vision splendid no more attends men as they plod on their way through the weariness of middle life or pass down into the deepening shadows of advancing and solitary old age. The best comes first for the men who have no good but this world's good. And some have got nothing in their cups but dregs that they scarcely care to drink. But Jesus Christ keeps the best till the last. His gifts become sweeter every day. No time can cloy them. Advancing years make them more precious and more necessary. The end is better in this course than the beginning. And when life is over, and we pass ultimately into the heavens at the coming of our Lord, the word will come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness as we find how much better it is than all we'd ever dreamed it would be. Thou hast kept the good wine until now. And so, my friend, do not touch that cup that is offered to you by the harlot world, spiced and fragrant and foaming. At the last it biteth like a serpent, it stingeth like an adder. Take the pure joys that the Christ, loved, trusted, obeyed, summoned to your feast and welcomed in your heart will bring to you. These shall grow and become greater until the perfection of the heavens. My friend, the choice is yours. Will your wine run out? Or will you see greater things, ever greater things? Friend, in this Gospel of John, in each miracle we see the situation of the sinner. No joy, that's the first one. The second sign, the nobleman's son, no health. The third sign of the paralytic, no strength. The fourth sign, the hungry multitudes, no sustenance. The fifth sign... The disciples in the ship about to plummet down, no safety. The sixth sign of the man born blind, no sight. And the seventh sign, Lazarus in his tomb, no life. That's the picture of every sinner without joy, without health, without strength, without nourishment, without safety, without sight, and without life. What an estate, what a condition. We drug ourselves on the pleasures of the world. But the pleasures of this world are a cheat. Even the ancients knew that. The ancients used to say that with repetition, all pleasures lose their relish. They said, moreover, that the more intense the pleasure, the shorter it lasts. And thirdly, they said, the intense pleasures rob all the other calmer pleasures of their delight. How true that is. How can things become different for you and me? What can change things? Well, would you observe that in this story you have the secret that the Virgin Mary had learned from Jesus. When the situation was embarrassing and they turned to Mary, her comment was, whatever he tells you, do it. Ah, my friend, there's a secret. It's true that all the doing in the world can't earn salvation. It's true that it's too late for us to try and earn heaven by keeping the law now. Christians keep it indeed as best they might in a sinful world. 
with sinful natures, but they do it in gratitude to Christ. Obedience is the response of those that have found eternal life. And the words of Mary are deeply significant. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. In the beginning of scripture, faith is not mentioned. Love is not mentioned. But man was given a command, a solitary command, because that would be the test of his faith and love. And when we get to the close of scripture, we read that blessed are they that do his commandments, so they may have right to the tree of life. Or right only by grace. Right only because their Lord kept them perfectly. But those that wash their robes in the blood of Christ keep his commandments in gratitude and they will enter into the city. So at the beginning and end of the Bible, you have commandments mentioned. The remnant church of scripture is spoken of as keeping the commandments of God as well as having the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have the testimony of Jesus in that gospel that's been revealed by prophets old and new but they have the law of God. But the law of God is the gift of his love. It warns us from all the things that would destroy us. We read in Deuteronomy that God came and from his right hand went forth a fiery law for the people, for he loved the people. God's law and his love come from the same heart, the same mind. And obedience is the secret of blessing and a secret of transformation. Right in the centre of scripture, we read of one who was obedient unto death, the Christ who humbled himself and for our sakes took our curse, our guilt, our separation from God, our pain, our misery, our shame, this one who was obedient unto death. Over 70 times in the New Testament we read of repentance. And what's repentance? Repentance is changing one's mind regarding the disobedience of one's former course. Grace does not annul law, my friends. It fulfills it. Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. We establish the law, writes Paul in Romans 3 and verse 31. The law is holy, he says. The commandment Holy, just and good. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Romans 8 and verse 4. We should be afraid of legalism but we should also be afraid of antinomianism where men do what they like and ignore the law. The gospel is neither though it can sound like either. Law as a method is forbidden by the New Testament. But law as a standard is always with us. And if we want transformation, we must learn to bring our lives into harmony with God's law. In our eating, in our drinking, in our dressing, in our speaking, in our thinking, in our sexing, in our ambitions, in our work, in all things. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's the first thing to observe. And then there was another one. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots up to the brim. They had to be filled to the brim. It takes a whole heart to receive a whole Christ. The earthen vessels became empty and clean, but that wasn't enough. They had to be filled. An empty house can receive seven devils worse than the original inhabitant. We need to be filled with Christ, filled with his word, filled with his truth, 
The first and great commandment is to love God with all the heart and mind and soul and strength. You can't be a Christian and not study, my friends. There are so many temptations for even church leaders not to study. But all must study. That's the first and great commandment, to love God, not only with the heart, but with the mind. That the mind might be filled with the truth of God. That we might judge aright and bless others through knowing the truth of God. We have to present these vessels of our human lives. They're only earthen vessels and somewhat cracked, as someone has said. But if they're empty and offered to the Master, and if they're filled to the brim with the truth of Scripture and with the Holy Spirit who accompanies that truth, then something will happen. The whole heart does indeed receive the whole Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't take us by halves, nor will he give himself by halves. It's the fullness that makes the overflow. A young boy once said, I can't hold much but I can overflow a lot. And so, my friend, you want transformation? Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Fill the water pots with water. Fill them to the brim. Leave no vacant place in the soul. Hold back no part of your life from Christ. Yield a whole heart. Fill it with a whole Christ. But thirdly, it says, draw out now and take to the governor of the feast. It's not enough to have the blessing within ourselves. We must learn to share. Go forward and use the gift of his love. Take the life that he's given. Use it to comfort the sorrowing, to save the lost, to help the discouraged, to minister in the name and grace of your blessed master. And as you go forth, the Holy Spirit will go before you. He will work through you. He'll lead you on from strength to strength. He'll multiply you 100-fold. Do you remember Ezekiel's vision about the trickling water from the place of the sacrifice by the temple? It became water to the ankles, then water to the knees, then water to the thighs, and then water overhead, a river to swim in, a torrent of blessing and power. My friend, that can be your life. Beginning to die, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. Fill your life to the brim with Christ, his word, his truth, his spirit. And then draw out and share with all those that are near and dear to you. God bless you. Amen.